All right, so uh, how have you guys been feeling about Family Month so far? Have you guys been enjoying this series? Uh, I have, uh, it's one of these series that is kind of terrifying to talk about because uh, family is such a personal thing and everybody's families are so different. Um, but I'm grateful as a church that we do this because um, the church that I grew up in um, was uh, a great church in a lot of ways and we learned a lot about the scripture. We learned a lot about who God was. Uh, and a lot of it oftentimes was kind of this uh, head knowledge, but we didn't really understand all the, always how it applied to our everyday lives. And so I love that at South Hills we take some time aside and we say, and we always try and have it apply to our everyday lives. But for this series specifically, it's like, hey, let's get super practical and let's talk about some things and our family relationships and family dynamics. We'll look at these scriptures, but let's get really practical and understand how we can be healthier as families. Um, because in some ways, it's, in many ways, it's deeply, deeply tied to your spiritual health. And your spiritual health is deeply tied to your family health. My family growing up, uh, we were in church all the time. Uh, and from the outside, we were very spiritual. We knew a lot about the Bible. My dad was a pastor. I was the perfect little PK, never caused any problems ever. Uh, you're not supposed to laugh at that. Um, but our, our family at home was a mess. And so there's this disconnect that happens. And so I'm grateful that we get to carve some time out and talk about these things um, because it's so important to not only us and the way that we experience life, but it's important to God. He wants us to have healthy families, healthy relationships. He wants us to have uh, a sense of fullness there. So our apartment, we live in an apartment in Costa Mesa, and it's an old apartment, but we love it. We love, well, we don't love the apartment. We love where the apartment is. Uh, and um, I think we must have like the worst luck with plumbing. We have a plumber out at our apartment, it seems like maybe every couple of months, uh, and a little while back, maybe four or five months ago, we had a plumber out. I wasn't home at the time, and uh, our sink, our kitchen sink was leaking, and uh, so he was, uh, had the cabinets open up underneath, and he was laying down, you know, kind of like the plumber stance, like underneath the sink, like trying to fix it or whatever, and so uh, around that same time, my four-year-old came home, and he ran into the kitchen, and uh, he snuck up on the plumber and then jumped on his stomach and said, Daddy! And then I'm sure the plumber had a lot of great things to say in that moment. Uh, and then he like kind of took his head out from underneath the cabinet. He's like, Arlo, my son. He's like, well, that's not a daddy. He's creepy. <laughs> and so I don't, I mean, I like to think that he thought it was me because it was just manly work around the house. Uh, maybe it's just because I, there was a guy laying down on the floor and that's more like me. But, uh, but there's a sense, I mean, we all have these moments where we feel like we recognize our parents. We have these moments where we feel like we recognize them in ourselves. Have, we, have you guys had these moments? I feel like it happens more and more as you get older, uh, especially now that I start, I have kids and all of a sudden I'll say things, I'll do things, uh, and I'm like, oh my gosh, uh, I am my parents in so many different ways. We have these moments, and for some of us, that is a, an amazing thing, and we love that. Uh, I was just at a wedding last night uh, for somebody here at the church. Mark uh, Batstone uh, and Shay got married, and so I was out there, and they are so incredibly close with their families. It was crazy. This wedding, uh, the maid of honor was her sister, the uh, best woman was his sister. Uh, her dad officiated the wedding. His dad played all of the music and sang live. I mean, it was like this, it was a family affair. Uh, and so there's a lot of families that are incredibly close. And there's a sense of, as you look at your parents, as you look at your relatives, you're like, man, I would love to be like them. I would love to be the type of dad or mom or sibling or just adult human that they were. I, I want that for myself. 
And then some of us have families where there's tension and we start to see these things that come up and like, ah, I never liked that about my parents. I never liked that about him or her. And I don't like that I'm doing that. And you start to recognize it. And so this is what we're going to be talking about a little bit today. These moments, they can surprise us. Sometimes they're funny. Um, You know, uh, sometimes they can unnerve us. Um, I always joke around about how I got my dad's teeth uh, but I got my mom's side of the family's hair. Uh, and if I had to pick between the two, I think I got the better of the, uh, the fit. Um, so, but uh, there's these things that we can kind of see about ourselves, see about our personality, and we can trace these back to our families. Uh, there's a lot more of our family in us than sometimes we're able to see or maybe we're even willing to admit. But here's the reality, here's what we're talking about today, is that our family forms how you feel about feelings. So in this series, we've been talking about these core emotional needs that every single person has. Uh, And we're not talking about this because we want us to all be needy or all be super emotional or whatever it is. This is just a reality. It's science. Uh, It's been proven. There's these psychological needs that every person has uh, to be liked, to be be included, valued, uh, and to feel like they are in control of their own story. And the way that people get these needs met is by bidding. It's this term called bidding. And you send out a bid, and this bid is an attempt to get some sort of response a reaction to have someone love you, value you, include you, um, show you a sign that you are a valid human, that you are worth something. And so we send out these bids to people, whether it's we send out a bid to our kid or our spouse or our friend or coworkers, we send out these bids because we want to be valued. Uh, but the reality is, is that our family uh, of origin forms how we feel about Feelings. When you're a kid, you assume that every family thinks and acts and operates the same way that yours does. Uh, and then you grow up and you realize like, oh, other people do things wrong. I mean, just kidding. Uh, other people do things differently. Uh, and we're coming up on Thanksgiving, so just a quick show of hands. How many of you guys have uh, sweet potatoes with marshmallow on top? How many of you guys have sweet potato with crumb topping like Jesus would have it? Thank you. Uh, how many of you guys have green beans? How many of you guys have green bean casserole? Come on, what is that? Uh, with like the Kellogg frosted flakes on top? Maybe not frosted flakes, I guess, but maybe that would make it better. That might make it more edible. Uh, so every, you know, you grow up and then especially as you get married, I've told these stories a thousand times, but my wife and I's family's Christmas traditions could not have been more different. And then we got married, and you never talk about that when you're engaged or planning a wedding. So then it's Christmas season, and you're excited to have this first Christmas with your spouse, and they just do it wrong, the entire thing. It's like, hey, that's not how this goes. Like everything down to stockings and what type of Christmas tree is the right type of Christmas and all of these things, it just continues to happen. You realize that my family did things differently. My family... uh, embraced things differently. My family talked about things differently. My family handled emotions differently than other families. It's not necessarily saying it's wrong. It's not necessarily saying that it's right. But what happens is when we get older, we start to be in relationships with other people that are coming from other families, is we start to have friction and tension because we're coming at it from totally different angles. Now, inside of that, there are healthy ways and unhealthy ways. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, But it's something that we don't want to ignore, especially when you start to realize that the way that I do things, 
uh, whether it's things that I like or things that I dislike, things that I do naturally because uh, uh, naturally it's, it's things that I want to be this type of person or the natural things that come up and say, like, this isn't really who I want to be. We start to think about that when we get married and we start to think about that even more when we start to have kids, when we start to be in a relationship with other people because all of a sudden you start to realize, well, if I'm this way because of my family, then what are my kids going to be like? When they're 30. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well then now I have a decision to make. Now I have a choice to make. And some of you guys are parenting right now. Most of us need to be also parenting ourselves a little bit. Most of us need to be taking the steps to grow and develop ourselves because there's things that we still need to kind of uh, round off the corners a little bit in some of these areas in our lives. Uh, much of the way that we bid for affection, for these emotional needs to be met, begins in our childhood. We adopt the emotional philosophy of our family. We don't do it intentionally, it just happens. So week one, the big idea was your response shapes your... Thank you. My wife remembers. Uh, week two, which was just seven days ago, please remember, uh, when you own your part... It softens your Yes. It rhymes. It's easier that way, right? Heart. So cheesy. Uh, this week, the big idea, what I want us to be able to hold on to and take away from this is this reality that your past is a part. It's a part of you. It's a part of everything about you, but it is not the whole. It is not all of you. It does not have to define you, and it doesn't have to control your future. And so we have to start to embrace this reality that our past is a part of me. Some of us don't want to admit it. Some of us feel like we can be like, you know what? I left that all behind. It's been 20 years. I haven't talked to them. I'm not looking back. I'm never going to think about that. I went to a counselor a couple times you know, years ago, you know, and, and we refuse to acknowledge uh, the impact and the way that it still shapes us. It might not be unhealthy, but it is shaping us. Our past is a part, but it's not the whole. So your emotional philosophy, this phrase, emotional philosophy, is basically defined as your collection of beliefs and feelings about feelings. Uh, how you handle feelings, what you think about feelings, uh, how you process feelings, how you allow other people to process feelings that are around you, other friends and family members. Every family has its own kind of philosophy of how they deal with this. And this is not the type of thing that you get embroidered on a pillow, right? This isn't like what people like put on barn doors in their kitchen, you know. Uh, we don't talk about our feelings in this home. Uh, live, laugh, love, you know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's just not the reality, but it's there for every family. It's, it's something that every family has an approach, and it's almost never, ever stated, but it's understood. This is how we handle feelings. This is how we handle emotions. This is how we handle things in this home. And most of them operate on four different philosophies. There's kind of four basic philosophies. I'm going to fly through these, um, and actually we're going to try something a little bit new this week because there's a balance of... Uh, the amount of information that is helpful, and then the amount of time that I can talk for that is helpful. And so this week, I'm actually going to record like a second podcast episode, and I'm going to jump in a little bit deeper on each one of these things. So if you guys want to learn more about some of this stuff that I've been learning and reading through from Dr. John Gottman and his book, The Relationship Cure, uh, th this week on the podcast, check it out. It'll be available. Um, so there's four different philosophies. The first one is dismissive. Uh, dismissive emotional philosophy. It, it, displays of sadness, anger, fear are essentially met with indifference. 
uh, or sarcasm or a wall of kind of false positivity. Um, tears can go unnoticed. Complaints can go un- uh, ignored. Um, fears are sometimes minimized. Families with this kind of dismissive philosophy or homes that have this philosophy or individuals, they say things like, well, there's no need to get angry about it. Look on the bright side. There's nothing to be afraid of. It's not that big of a deal. Get over it. Move on. Don't pout. Think positive. Live, laugh, love. Uh, it's this thing where it's like, it's this approach where it's, like it's, it's acknowledging in some way, but it's kind of dismissing and saying, this is not that significant of a thing. Let's just move on. Don't let it, don't let it get in your way, whatever it is. And, and there are obviously moments where these are true and, and correct things to say. But overall, this can be a, a challenging thing. The dismissing response is bad for any relationship, uh, but particularly for children. Uh, it essentially teaches them when you feel anything negative, the people that are closest to you don't want to know about it. Don't let them know how you really feel. More people would like you if you could shut off your feelings altogether. It's a sense when we start to dismiss these feelings of fear, sadness, anger, uh, whatever anxiety, uh, essentially what we're saying is uh, we don't really want to know about that. And as adults, we can kind of navigate that. But when we have children that we're interacting with, whether it's your kids or uh, nephews or nieces or whatever it might be, there's a sense of, of what it's imprinting on them is this is not welcome information. And so I should probably just kind of can it. I should lock it up a little bit. Um, this is a, a challenging thing. The second type of emotional philosophy uh, is a disapproving one. So the first one is kind of dismisses it and says, ah, don't get angry about it. Don't, you know, just move past it. Disapproving uh, when it experiences sadness, anger, fear, it's met with criticism or punishment or aggression. Families with this philosophy say things kind of like, um, we've probably all heard this at one time, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> uh, don't be such a baby. Grow up. I think one of the things that uh, I have the hardest time with, and, and I hear this, and I, I get really upset when I hear it from other people when they say it to their kids, and I've even found myself on the brink of saying it to my son, but the phrase, man up, is such a, a terrible thing to say to an eight-year-old, to a 10-year-old. Like, what is it to man up? Uh, is it to not be sad? Is it to not show emotion? I mean, there's all these types of phrases. Uh, don't you dare use that tone of voice with me. Say something nice or don't say anything at all. Disapproving uh, this kind of philosophy, um, they believe that showing anger or sadness, fear is something that selfish people do or entitled people do to try and get their own way. And disapproving uh, people are essentially afraid of what might happen if they and those around them actually fully felt their feelings. Their feelings have to be kind of kept at bay because they're dangerous and we don't want them to get in the way of us thinking clearly or getting things done. So dismissive, disapproving. The third one is passive. Um, a passive emotional philosophy, displays of sadness, anger, fear are met with empathy and compassion usually, but also a bit of helpless kind of resignation. Like it's, I get it and I am sorry and there is nothing that we can do. There is no path forward. This is just the way it is. Uh, phrases come to mind like this. You must be feeling so sad. Dot, 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 dot. No, no resolution. I can see that you're mad right now. So it's acknowledging it, 
It's okay to be scared. I'm scared sometimes too. It's a perfectly okay thing to say. I'm sorry, but that's just how things are. It's, it's acknowledging the pain, the fear, the sadness, the emotion. It's acknowledging it, and it's saying, I see it, and there's nothing that we can do about it. We don't have any control. We can't uh, affect change in our lives. We can't shape things. We can't uh, move forward. There's no upswing to this. These types of passive statements are validating, but they're essentially also a little bit hopeless, Unlike the dismissing and disapproving philosophies, the passive are empathetic enough to communicate that you are liked and you are included, but it doesn't do anything to help you take control of your own story. When my son tells me he's scared, I tell him, I'm scared sometimes too, but then I also say, and here's what I do about it. It's helping create a path forward. It's not just saying, yeah, we're all scared. Which is probably true on some level. We are all scared at times. Uh, there's these situations in our lives where we're, we're experiencing these things, and so we can acknowledge that it is true, but then how do we help them take control and take uh, a step in being able to handle these emotions, these feelings, uh, and even for ourselves as we think about what does it look like for us to parent ourselves? What does it look like for us to not just validate the feelings, but also figure out a way forward? Um, Let's see, those in passive families also often learn to, uh, that it's okay to deeply feel your feelings, but there's not much that you can do about what's causing them. There's not really much you can do to respond differently to them. So that's just kind of the way that it is. Um, the fourth and final one is the, the healthiest of the approaches, uh, and they call it a proactive emotional philosophy. The displays of sadness, anger, and fear are met with empathy, compassion, and also introspection and empowerment. So families with this philosophy say things kind of like this. It's okay to not be happy right now, but what are the steps that we can take to get out of this place? I wonder what's going on in their life to make them treat you that way. Uh, do you feel good about how you responded to that? It's okay to feel that way, but it's not okay to behave this way. Is there any part of you that feels like you could have done this differently? It's a sense of acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the unfairness of life, acknowledging the fear, and it's also inviting a clear next step. It's saying, well, we can respond to this in a certain way. We can take control of what we do now, now that we feel this, now that this happened to us, now that we're experiencing this in our relationships, what does it look like now for us to go? It's, it's okay to be upset, but it's not okay to talk to me that way. It, it's, a, it's a balance of saying, I understand this, but also let me help you continue to grow and and. and and, and embrace these things. Proactive parents understand that you can accept and empathize with someone's feelings without having to agree with their conclusions. And it is very important that we realize that this is not just for parents. This is for everyone that you work with. This is for all of your family and friends on Facebook. Uh, this is for your neighbors. It is so rare to find people these days that are willing to empathize and accept and, and validate someone's feelings or experience because they feel like if I empathize with them, it, it means that I agree with them. And that is not what it means. 
We can, we can understand, we can be beside, we can, uh, we can empathize, and it doesn't require us to validate or agree with their opinions, whether it's adults, whether it's coworkers, friends, adult siblings, adult parents, kids, whatever it might be. It's a really important thing for us to know. Uh, people with this philosophy, this proactive philosophy, see the value of emotions. Anger ultimately can be a force for creativity. Sadness is often a signal uh, that the way someone is living isn't working for them. Fear may be an opportunity to realize a sense of inner strength to be able to overcome things. So there's these senses where, man, it's not just that you're afraid and that's a bummer. It's a sense of, well, what's next? How, How do we move forward from this? And what's different from the proactive philosophy versus the passive philosophy is that the Parents don't only give their children freedom to admit and express their feelings, but also help them process it in a healthy way. They set limits on appropriate behavior, and they develop problem-solving skills. This is all research that Dr. Gottman has found in this book that we've been using a lot uh, for this series. Proactive families talk about this reality that it's okay to feel what you're feeling. You're not wrong or crazy for feeling that way, but you also don't have to be uh, enslaved to your emotions. You don't have to be enslaved to your emotions. Um, you're not, you are not your thoughts, but what thoughts are you choosing to focus on? You are not your feelings, but are you allowing your feelings to consume you? And for some people, especially people that tend to be a bit more on the emotional side, like myself, we can get in seasons of life where it feels like it's just chaos, and we're being blown every which way, and we don't know how to make sense of it. Um, and there's these these, this process that we can, we can try and create for ourselves where we learn, okay, how do I figure out to not only acknowledge this, but then also figure out a way forward, and we can help pass that on to other people, especially if we have kids. Research shows that the proactive philosophy produces healthier, more well-adjusted, and productive people in life. Um, and the crazy thing is that when you start to discern which philosophy your parents subscribe to and how that affected you, you can be aware of your own tendencies that you inherited because you might not want to pass those on. As you start to sit here and think about your parents and maybe some of the moments, and, and I think probably we all dip into each of these four things from time to time, uh, but different homes usually have one kind of tendency where they move with, and, and we start to recognize how that affects us, and then we, we get to decide. It's not decided for us. Do I want to pass this on? Do I want to create this for someone else? Is this one of the things I want to bring from my family of origin and pass it on? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But we get to make that decision. That is the most important thing to know. It's not just, well, that's how it's been in my family for generations. That's how it's always going to be. We get to decide. We get to define if that is true. Refusing to acknowledge where you came from does not keep it from shaping where you're going. It does not change where you came from, and it doesn't keep it from shaping where you're going. Your past is a part of you. It is not the whole part of you, but it is a part. It informs you, it defines you, and it shapes you, and so we have to acknowledge it. We're going to jump back into the story in Esther, um, and uh, we've been in this book. Uh, the book is called Esther. It's, uh, so far, uh, for the first entire chapter, we haven't even met anybody named Esther. We've been talking about King Xerxes and Queen Vashti. If you guys were 
not here over the last couple weeks, or if you missed last week, essentially they got in this huge argument, uh, and uh, King Xerxes, the Persian Empire, was 44% of the world's population. It was a massive empire. Xerxes is the king of this empire. He gets super upset, and instead of talking to the queen about it, he writes a letter and sends it out to the 44% of the world's population in every single language that they all spoke and said, okay, now... Here's the rule. Every woman has to do everything that her husband says forever. Uh, it's literally, basically what he said. Not literally. I guess literally has a different meaning. That's essentially what he said. Um, and, uh, and so then he never speaks to Queen Vashti again. He banishes her from the kingdom. He doesn't even talk to her anymore. And so then we jump into Esther chapter 2. Uh, and uh, his relationship has ended, it's fallen apart. His friends realize that he's a little bit sad and they're trying to cheer him up and they tell him that he needs to get out there, get back in the dating scene, you know, sign up for Bumble, figure it out. Like, there's someone out there for you. Um, and so we're jumping into Esther chapter 2, uh, verse 1. It says, But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. Essentially, like, well, I'm not angry anymore, but she's gone, and I banished her, and that probably wasn't the best way to handle this. So his personal attendants, again, the smartest people in the room in this story, they suggest, well, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. So essentially, they organize like a Old Testament version of The Bachelor, uh, and... They're rolling up on horses and carriages, and they've all got clever things. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it doesn't say any of that. But, but they essentially, they start trying to find him someone to marry. Who is going to be the next queen? And, uh, you know, they all felt so quickly like they had this really strong connection with him. And then they get sent home and on and on. If you don't watch The Bachelor, you don't get it. It's okay. Um, they basically, so they organize this. All these beautiful women are paraded before the king. He chooses one. She becomes the queen. Her name is Esther. And King Xerxes is Persian, and Esther is from a Jewish family. She comes from the tribe of Israel, and this is a very different background. They have totally different upbringings. They come from totally different families, socioeconomic backgrounds, belief systems, emotional philosophies is what we're talking about today. All of these things that are different about their, their families, their lives, and what they're bringing into this, the past that is a part of them now uh, shows up in their relationship and in this story in a massive way. And in Esther uh, chapter 2, verse 20, it says that Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. Now, there's a lot more in this story. We don't have time to look at all of it, but she essentially is pretending like she doesn't have a crazy family. None of us have ever done that before, though, right? She's essentially, she keeps her nationality, her background, everything about her. She keeps all of that a secret. And it makes sense in the context of the story. The Jews were a conquered people by the Persians at this time. There's a lot of tension. And she was legitimately afraid of what the king and what other people might do if they knew her heritage. And on another level, I really genuinely think that we all do this. We all try and keep some of our family history a secret. We all try and keep certain things under the covers. We all try and keep certain things in the dark. Like, man, that's, that's way back there. We don't fully dive into our stories or our family history with the people that we're building new relationships with. We don't unload that stuff the first time we're hanging out with new friends. Or maybe you do. 
probably shouldn't. Uh, you're probably going to keep looking for new friends that way. No. But there's this reality where we don't just generally kind of like give all of that information. We don't just unload that information for people. We think, well, well that was the old me. Uh, I don't live at home anymore. I've got my own family now. I haven't talked to them in years. But again, refusing to acknowledge where you come from doesn't keep it from shaping where you're going. Your past is a part. It's not the whole, but it is a part of you. And so this omission from Esther has huge implications, not just for her, but for all of her people. So this nobleman uh, named Haman, he gets really upset at Esther's uncle. He doesn't know it's Esther's uncle. They get this little dispute going. Uh, and Haman finds out that he's Jew- a Jewish man, and he decides to manipulate the king into passing a law to exterminate all of the Jews. I know. It took a real dark turn real quick. So we're jumping in, Esther, verse 8, chapter 3, says, Haman approaches King Xerxes and said, There's a certain race of people scattered through all of the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. And then he goes on and basically says, And also, if you kill all of them, I'll give you a ton of money. Uh, just in case he hadn't made his point clear. And so the king makes this decree. And he's like, all right, sounds good to me. Let's kill all of the Jewish people and the entire empire. This is an insanely terrible situation. It stirs up all kinds of emotions, obviously for everyone. Uh, and so I want to just jump through and look at some of the emotional philosophies that it impacts that show up here. So Esther chapter 4, verses 1. This decree goes out. Everybody finds it. Uh, Esther is unaware of what's happening, but it goes out to this 44% of the Persian Empire. The the world's population is the Persian Empire. Verse 1, it says, When Mordecai, who's Esther's uncle, when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. This is a man that has no problem expressing his feelings. Uh, He is very open about it. And honestly, this was something that the Jewish people were very comfortable with. This was an aspect of their faith and their tradition was being able to honestly mourn, openly mourn and wail. And so this is kind of a, a proactive emotional philosophy saying this is the appropriate time to be distraught. Uh, we just found out we are all going to be killed. Uh, this is an appropriate response. Um, This is the way that he was raised, this proactive emotional philosophy. Verse 2, it says that he, meaning Mordecai, he went as far as the gate of the palace. For no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. Which emotional philosophy do you think this is? This would be the disapproving emotional philosophy. Uh, Don't bring your sad feelings into this house. Uh, I know even with... My boys, there's times I've been like, if you're going to cry, you can go upstairs to your room. And there's moments now as I prepare to teach a sermon where I'm like, maybe that wasn't the right thing to say to them, you know. And it's always finding this balance. But there's this reality where we are kind of communicating like, no, you can't cry here in this space. This is the living room space. We're watching The Bachelor, uh, The Persian Bachelor. Uh, It's this disapproving, this kind of sense of this is not allowed to be here. King Xerxes' house essentially says you can have all the feelings you want out there, but in here, this is a happy place. Uh, There's no mourning allowed. There's no sadness allowed in here. So you take that, and we'll just stay here. And some of you guys are, like, twitching a little bit because these are the families that you grew up in, too. It's a sense of, yeah, you can't feel that. That's not allowed in this house. 
It goes on in verses 4 and 5. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, her uncle, mourning, uh, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. And when Esther sent for uh, Hathak, uh, she ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what's troubling him and why he was in mourning. Essentially, she's sending him clothes saying, would you please stop mourning? Would you please put this on and just act like things are okay? Uh, she's essentially showing up in this dismissive kind of approach. It's, I get it. You're sad. This is inconvenient. But move on. Get over it. The story goes on in verse 7. It says, Mordecai told him, meaning Esther's servant, uh, the whole story, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 10, then Esther told Hathak to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All of the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court will, uh, without being invited, are doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Esther moves from kind of dismissive to now a more passive approach of saying, I get it, but there's nothing that I can do. What? I mean, this is just the way that it is. I understand it's a bad situation. Let's not cry over spilled milk. Uh, essentially, she's telling him to kind of hurry up, get over it. Essentially, uh, it's hopeless, and it's just the way that things are. She was raised in this culture, the same one as Mordecai, to be able to acknowledge and proactively handle emotions and things like this, but she kind of gets to this place now where she's becoming more passive and overwhelmed. So ultimately, do you guys want to know what happens next? We're going to talk about it next week. <laughs> I know. I should have done that week one. Uh, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but you could read it in your Bibles also this week. Um, but... Uh, We'll talk about the end of the story next week. But I will say that ultimately Mordecai calls her back to her roots, the, the way that her family would have raised her, uh, reminding her that she is not a victim. And although she can't control the whole situation, she can choose her response to it. And this is what a proactive emotional philosophy does. It says, I cannot control them. I can't control the world. I can't control everything that happens. But I can control my response. I can understand that my past is a part of who I am. It brings me to where I'm at today. And it is not all of me. It doesn't define all of me. And I get to control how I respond to this. I get to take steps. And this is what Mordecai reminds her of. Ultimately, uh, it leads towards rescuing their people. And the reason that we're talking about this isn't just because psychological research says that it's healthy. The reason we're talking about this is because Jesus is constantly inviting us to love our neighbor, to love each other. He talk, uh, Paul writes in Ephesians about the way we care for husbands and wives and children and uh, our communities. All of it points back to creating space for people as they are. And emotional philosophies, the first three of these emotional philosophies, they don't do that well. But ultimately, when you come to this proactive one, you're saying, I understand, I, I have empathy for where you're at, and what does it look like for you now to take control of your response? What does it look like for you now to step in? Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 12. 
He says uh, in verse 10, live in true devotion to one another, loving each other as sisters and brothers. And depending on the sisters and brothers you have, that may need to be modified. He says, be first to honor others by putting them first. Not your discomfort with their feelings. Not your discomfort with not knowing how to resolve an issue, which is a lot of times why we try and dismiss people's feelings. Because it's like, it'll, it'll get better. It's, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Just keep your head up. Usually we know that doesn't help them, but it helps us. It helps us feel comfortable. Like, okay, I got out of that awkward conversation. I was able to help them. I gave them a nugget of wisdom. There's this sense where we dismiss, not because we don't care about them, but because we're uncomfortable. Paul, he's writing, he's saying, be, honor, uh, be first to honor others by putting them first. If some have cause to celebrate, join the celebration. And if others are weeping, join in that as well. Work towards unity. Live in harmony with one another. Avoid thinking that you are better than others or wiser than the rest. Instead, embrace common people and ordinary tasks. Essentially, what I think that this uh, applies to in this conversation is avoid thinking that you're better than others or wiser than the rest. There's a sense of, man, what does it look like for us to not dismiss? What does it look like for us to not rise up and, and disapprove of how others are feeling, what others are going through? What does it look like for us to have empathy and also to help provide a way forward. And this is ultimately what the gospel is. And we've been talking about this every week because it's so important. Every one of these things that we're talking about with our relationships is because it's modeled by Jesus for us. Jesus, we read last week in Philippians 2, he came and became a human and had empathy and walked and lived and understood what it meant to be human. He was tempted and tested. He lost loved ones. He was uh, stabbed in the back by his closest friends. His family disowned him at certain points. I mean, whatever it is that you've got going on, he also experienced those things just with a little bit less technology. The same familial dynamics were in place 2,000 years ago. Jesus had empathy and ultimately he sets himself aside for us. He helps us and says, I see it. I get it. I see the brokenness. I understand the mistakes. And let's create a path forward. It was the entire goal. It was to come and to acknowledge the gap in the relationship and say, let's make a path forward. And that's what he did on the cross. When he gave his life, it was to enable a path forward, to not just sit in brokenness, to not just sit in despair, to not just sit in sadness and in addiction or in broken families or whatever these things are that we all experience from time to time. But it was to say, there is a way forward, and it's ultimately through his love and through his life. We're encouraged to treat each other this way because this is the way that Jesus treats us. This is why it's important for us to know both where we come from and where Jesus is trying to take us. Your past is a part, but it's not the whole. And being aware of the philosophy, the emotional philosophy that you've inherited or that you've embraced won't make it go away, but it will give you insight. The next time you default to something that's unhealthy, then you get to say, is this something I want to pass on? Is this something I want to continue? Is this the way I want to, uh, is this who I want to be still? So ultimately, the good news 
is that you don't have to go to therapy. You can. Some of you need to. Uh, You don't have to go to therapy to get this figured out. Ultimately, this is what community is for. Having some people in your lives that you can share your family history with. Some of the people you can talk about those dynamics. That's why we talk about being in growth groups. That's why we talk about joining a serving team. And one part is because we need help. And another part is because it builds relationships. And you start to talk about these things that you've experienced. You get to start to own the past and, and acknowledge that this has shaped a little bit of who I am. And, and when you acknowledge it, then you start to have the strength and the ability to overcome and, and find a different way forward. So it doesn't affect you in the same way to listen and validate each other, explore the meaning of these experiences. This is something I tell to people because it's terrifying to share some of these things. And so I I tell people this a lot. You don't have to tell everything to everyone, but you have to tell everything to someone. Like someone needs to be able to know. You don't have to go around with a megaphone and put it all out there for everybody to know. We all need someone in our life that we can share everything with because this is what allows us to say, that will not shape me anymore. I've articulated it. I've said it. And now I get to choose how I respond. We get to change the emotional philosophy of our family by inviting God to help us pursue something more healthy. God wants to walk with us and give us the strength to do this in our lives, in our families, in our relationships. It might not be perfect, but it can be better. And what a gift that would be for each one of us, for our families and for our friends.